Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. And for those of you who did hear Jody speak last week and talk about my breakfast, um, you know, since then I've been trying this regimen of raw eggs like Rocky Balboa because of that embarrassing moment, but you know, that didn't really seem to work either. If any of you has any ideas of how I can get her back for that, I am all ears. Okay, so good morning. We are talking about obedience. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Hoorah, rah! But yeah. Exactly right. Okay. Let's uh, review our memory verse here. You can say it with me if you'd like. John 14, 23. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. You know, recently I was, uh, I was at my desk, and, and, and I was working, typing away, and I hear this conversation going on in the background. And these people I work with were talking about the five love languages does that sound familiar to anybody? Does anybody recall the five love languages? First of all, do you believe that it's been almost 30 years since that book came out? So I was reminded of this, and, and, and I began to research it a little bit, and uh, I, I learned some things. The author developed this book because he was, well, he was a pastor. He was a couples counselor. But see, he learned something that didn't just apply to married couples. He learned something that applied to human relationships in all walks of life. He learned that we receive love, that people receive love in one of five ways. They are words of affirmation, quality time. You can put it up there, buddy. Thank you. Um, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. These are the five ways that he identified that we receive love from other people. And he told, he told a story in an interview which explained how he came up with this because he was, a, he was counseling couples all the time and he said, I just kept hearing the same story. I just kept hearing people sell, tell me those slight variances, it all came down to the same principles. People would say things, for example, like this. A husband would come in and say, my wife is just not happy. And you know, every week I vacuum her car and twice a week, I mop all the floors, and every night after dinner, I wash the dishes, and she's not happy. She is just not happy. Well, this husband would go through this, this pastor counselor's program, and he would learn that his wife's love language, because out of these five, really everybody only has one primary love language that they receive love. And he would learn, for example, that his wife's love language was words of affirmation. So this husband would begin to take time to notice things about his wife that are particularly cool and neat and beautiful or things that she does, whatever, gifts that she has, and then he would tell her about them. He would say, wow, I really like the way you do this. I really like this. I really like that. Oh, oh that's great. And, and what the author said is that her, he called it a love tank. Her love tank was filled when he started to speak her love language. And hopefully she went and followed the program too. And she learned his love language and then she would in turn speak his love language and fill his love tank. This was the idea. 
Now, this pastor counselor, he thought, oh, this is a pretty neat idea. I better put this into, into print. And he thought, you know, maybe I'll sell a couple thousand copies, 2,000, 2,500, somewhere in their local community, whatever. Over the last almost 30 years, he has sold over 13 million copies. And here recently, I'm hearing about it outside of church. People are talking about this book. Extremely successful. But how do these principles relate to our relationship with God? See, I believe, and we believe as Christians, that we have a God-shaped love tank. That without God, it's empty. Without God, it's nothing that any human being can fill that love tank. It can only come from God. See, I'm a sinner. I need a forgiver. I've done wrong. I need a redeemer. I need a savior. I need all of that. I need, ultimately, I need a deliverer. See, when, when, when that husband demonstrated his love to his wife the right way, that love tank was filled. And how does God demonstrate his love for us? Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us in this way. That he died for us while we were still sinning. That's when he died. That's the love tank. When we get a hold of that, that will fill our love tank. But how do we show love for God? What is our response? Well, according to our verse this week, John 14, 23, it says, if you love me, you will obey me. See, we can, we, we, his love language is obedience. It's obedience. Anybody who's had young children, anybody who's babysat young kids, anybody who's been around kids can understand the importance of obedience. It is extremely important. I mean, my wife and I, when our kids were little, we used to take them bike riding. We used to go on bike trails, cross main streets, back on the bike trail. One day we were going along, and we stopped at this major intersection in Manchester on the bike trail. Jody's leading the way. I'm behind the kids. I'm behind in the back of the pack. She hits the button. She's waiting for that sign to say go, and when it does, Kyle was actually about six or seven years old. She instructs Kyle, okay, Kyle says go. Go ahead, buddy. Kyle starts pedaling his bicycle. I'm in the back of the pack, and I can see this car speeding. Just no regard for that red light, just speeding towards the area, and I yell, Kyle, stop! And Kyle hits the brakes. That car missed him by inches. That simple act of obedience saved his life. So we know that obedience is important. We know that obedience is important. I had, um, so we're actually, we're going to look at a couple of, uh, of things today. I want to identify, how does God, how does God define obedience? I want to clearly, I want us to have a clear picture of what obedience looks like to God. And what does disobedience look like? I want us to walk out of here with a picture of that. And I've chosen a couple of scriptures uh, to go from for that. Uh, and we're going to look first. First, I want to tell you this. I'm gonna, we're going to look first at Ezekiel. In fact, both of these stories are coming in and around the exile period. Now, when you hear of the exile, all right, it's this period where the Babylonians came and overtook the Israelites militarily and deported them from their land and took them into Babylonia as slaves. Now, Jody last week talked about the Red Sea moment. The Red Sea moment was about, uh, about a thousand years before that when the Israelites came into the promised land. Hundreds of years went by. They had the judges. They had many periods of, well, really a lot of disobedience, but some 
some moments of repentance, and God would deliver them. And, and then you had King Saul come on scene, even though the Lord said, yeah, you probably, no, I don't think this is a good idea. They wanted their king. God gives them their King Saul. Then King David comes along. There's unity. There's, uh, they built their temple. Just, you know, David had the plans for this. His son Solomon builds a temple. And this was a, a bright and shining moment for them. But 500 years after the temple was built, so now we are 1,000 years after the, the Red Sea moment, there is such disobedience in the land there's idols in the temple that had been built. God sends the prophet Jeremiah and says, look it, you guys are, I'm telling you, there's idols in the temple. This is not good. God is not happy with it. You guys are about to be overtaken. Unless you change your, your ways, you've got to change your ways or else the Babylonians are going to come in and take us over, deport us from the land. But they didn't listen. And that's exactly what happened. And at this time when they're, they're being overtaken and deported and things like this, this prophet Ezekiel steps on scene. So here's Ezekiel, and, and the Lord calls him to be a prophet. The Lord gives him a vision of the temple. So he takes him in a vision to the temple. You can see the temple there. You've got the outer court. That's that big area in the front there. And in the very back, you have the temple. You have, inside that temple, you have what's called the Holy of Holies. This was the place where God's presence rested. This was the most holy place that any human being could get close to. And it was only once a year that the high priest was even allowed to go inside there. There was a big curtain inside there, and behind the big curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy thing that the Israelites had was inside that temple. The very presence of God rested in that temple. And God says to Ezekiel, I want to take you inside the temple, and I want to show you what's going on. And he takes him in there in a vision. And this comes from Ezekiel chapter 8. And if you read from the beginning, I'm going to skip the chap uh, to verse 12, but if you read from the beginning, God says, I'm going to show you what is wicked and detestable. Wicked and detestable. Here we go, verse 12. He said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each at the own shrine of his own idol. They say, the Lord will not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And I saw women sitting there, mourning the God of Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. Then he brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple... Between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces set out towards the east. They were bowing to the sun in the east. He said to me, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? What a picture that God paints for Ezekiel in this vision. The elders the elders of the church, if you will, had their own idol. The women were surrounding the god of Tammuz. Now, this, this was the goddess of agriculture and fertility. So if you were to fast forward it to 2021, they were mourning the fact that they didn't have the bank, perfect bank account and they didn't have the perfect family. This is what their minds and hearts were on. And they were mourning this. And then here's the men. What are the men doing? They're worshiping the Egyptian god of the sun, power and strength. I need power. I need strength. I need to achieve. Fast forward to today, I need to climb the ladder. I need the best job. I need all of these things. This is what I'm doing, and the sun is rising in the east, and this is how they're starting their day. 
This is the picture that God gives Ezekiel. And worst of all, their backs are to the temple of God. Their backs are to the presence of God. Turn around. Turn around, God says. Face me. You will see my presence. You will know because you've been taught that the Ark of the Covenant is in there. And on the top of it, there's the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant where once a year the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood onto the mercy seat and say, look it, I'm a forgiver. I provide the blood to forgive your sins. This is what I want you to think about. This is what I want you. These things in and of themselves, they're not wrong. It's not wrong to achieve or to have a good job or to have a, that's not what he's saying. But that's not where your focus should be. You need to have your face to the presence of God. We need to have our faces to the things of God. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the rod of Aaron. Oh, Lord, your, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It was the Ten Commandments. Oh, God, I am blessed by your law, the psalmist says. I am blessed by this. The manna, there was a jar of manna that after the Red Sea experiences, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. God provided them food every day. Thank you, God, for your provision, for it is you that true provision comes from. Because if I have my focus on some bank account, that's not going to work. That's ultimately just going to lead to just bad thinking. And God calls it wicked and detestable to have my back to all of these things. You see, if God, if we allow God to do that, and we allow our, ourselves to focus on him, we're going to see all of the things, all of this, the, the amazing things that he has done. And our love tank will be filled. If we focus on his presence, worshiping him, our love tank will be filled. Things will change. We'll operate differently. It'll change the way we talk to people. It'll change the way we go to work. It'll change the way we do everything, banking, family, everything. If we have our face to the presence of God, that is obedience. I don't know what you pictured about obedience, but that's the picture that God gives and says, this, this is obedience to me. This is obedience to me. You know, most of my life, I've had this wrong. I have had this wrong. I, see, it says, if you love me, you will obey me. I always went for the obedience. I mean, much of the time anyways. I want to talk to you a little bit about the journey because really, the lie was, if, if, if you obey me, then the love follows. And that's not the case. See, I was a kid growing up, always going to church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every special service, every special event, every youth group activity, church, 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 church. We had, you know, church at home. We had church at school. I went to a private school. So a church was everywhere. And this was all about, to me, I just received it as obedience. I need to be obedient here. I need to be obedient there. I need to be, you know, and, you know, by the time I was six years old, I had a secret sin of uh, stealing candy from my mother's closet. <laughs> and actually, uh, during one of these church nights, there was a movie called A Thief in the Night. If any of you guys have ever seen that, I'll, if you haven't, I'll paint the picture for you. The movie starts out with a ticking clock. Tick, 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 tick. And this clock is ticking. It's an alarm clock. 
and there's a lady who wakes up when the alarm clock goes off to a news story that the rapture has occurred and that all of the Christians, and the way I interpret it, all the obedient people were gone and all the disobedient people like me who were stealing candy were left behind. <laughs> Don't take your six-year-old to that movie. <laughs> but I was taken there, okay? Scared out of my mind. And then my mother afterwards was like, um, I gotta get some clothes, go, go clothes shopping, David. I'm like, okay. She went into the dressing room without telling me. <laughs> it's happened. I've been left behind. Every, all of my fears, what do I do? I'm looking at the security guard. I'm like, oh, shoot, I remember that scene in the movie because ultimately what the movie ends up with is the, there's like this Gestapo police people that if you don't deny Christ, they decapitate you. And I'm like, ah, I, what, what do I do with this? I'm freaked out of my mind. I better start beating Obedient, oh, and this is hard. This is a burden to carry because I just, I don't know. The years went by. I just couldn't do it, all this obedience stuff, all these rules. I mean, we had rules that weren't even in Leviticus. <laughs> I just couldn't follow them. And I just always had this fear. Oh, man, I just can't. I just can't do this. I finally gave up. I gave up on all of it. By the time I was 12 years old, I'm just done with all of this stuff. I stopped doing my schoolwork. I disobeyed in every way that I could, really. I just was like, I'm, I'm done with this. It just doesn't work. I'm never good enough. Every time people throw more rules about me about being and obedient, I just fail over and over and over again. And it's just not going to work. I'm just not meant for this. I'm just not good enough. And I gave up. But you know, when I was 13 years old at a youth group event, an outside speaker was brought in. And this man was different. We spent the weekend with him, and he, he would talk to us, and, and he would talk. I mean, this dude, like, he loved Jesus. It was in every part of his speech. It was in every part of the way that he acted. Man, I don't even know that this guy talked about rules, to be honest with you. I don't remember him talking about any of that. He just talked about Jesus. He just talked about, I mean, he would get to the point, he didn't even have words, and he would just say the name Jesus over and over and over. I mean, this dude loved God. I mean, he knew the word like crazy. In fact, this dude actually, he memorized more scripture than probably most people that I know. But I'll tell you what, that's not what I remember most. I remember his love for God. I remember when he got up there and he spoke and he demonstrated Jesus bleeding, Jesus being pierced, Jesus being whipped, Jesus crying out. And he demonstrated that God did this for me while I was still sinning. I couldn't stay in my seat. I jumped, 13 years old, I jumped up out of my seat. I'm like, if he did that for me, I'm going to follow him. All of a sudden, things got into line. All of a sudden, my love tank, my God-sized love tank was filled to overflowing and I just wanted to follow him. And I set out to do this. And that speaker left, and churchy people came around me. And Are you reading your Bible, David? How much are you reading? How, how much time are you praying, David? Um, I mean, like 15 minutes. Oh. <laughs> oh. Apparently... I just, maybe, maybe I was right before then. Maybe I just am not meant for this. Maybe, and then this started this cycle of, I got to try harder. That's what we call legalism, by the way, in the church. 
Legalism is not obedience. But I would back and forth go between this ping pong game of I'm going to try harder, I'm going to give up. I'm going to try harder. Nah, it's just too hard. That's not what obedience is. Neither one of those is obedience. That's not what God's heart is. That's not what he wants for us. But you know, I was able to get out of that. I was able to get away from that. And God grew me. I'm still not perfect. I still struggle with legalism sometimes, maybe in my thinking. And, and, but you know, God is always there for me. His presence is always there for me. He has been through the years drawing me and drawing me further away from the disobedience of legalism and the obedience of of focusing on his presence. Having my back to my own achievement and my face to the presence of the one who made me. Having my face to the things of, oh God, thank you. What can I be thankful for today? I need to thank you for something, even if I don't, there's something to be thankful for. That's what obedience looks like. That's what God calls us to. If we can get into that presence of God we will begin to just operate out of that presence more and more. Oh, it's a process. Let me, it's, it's a process. It takes time. That's why God says, I died for you while you were sinners. Now look at, join me, believe in me, and we're, we'll, we'll walk out of this stuff. We'll walk away from some of these things that you've been worrying about, some of these things you've been mourning that you don't have. We'll, we'll walk you out of that. But we'll do it together. My one rule, focus on me. Put me first. Follow me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Focus on God. That is obedience. Legalism is not obedience. I want to take another look at another story that happened. Uh, it's actually, if we were to look at that exile period, as they were in Babylonia, in slavery really, the Persians came in and overtook the Babylonians. It's an amazing story. I won't go there, but it's an amazing story, actually, because it was a miracle. It was the hand of God moving in and allowing his people to be freed from the slavery once again. The Persians took over. It took some time for the, for, for the Israelites to actually, many of them, to actually make it back to the promised land. So this, this story comes from the story of Esther. Esther was living in that period where she was in Persia now, and she was eh, kind of post-slavery, so low social status, she was a Jewish exile, and she was an orphan. Her uncle Mordecai, I'm sorry, not her uncle, her cousin Mordecai basically adopts her, takes her in. And we see that Mordecai is an obedient servant of God. He takes, he takes in his cousin and one day he overhears a plan by two of the king's officers to, that they want to kill the king. And he's like, oh, no, 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 we can't have this. This is not right. They want to kill the king. This is, this is not right. This is unjust. This is a murder. And I'm going to report this. He does. The report is found to be true. And the king's life is saved through this report from Mordecai. E uh, Esther had been chosen to be queen, but her identity was hid. She was not supposed to tell anyone that she was actually a Jew. Uh, the, the king needed to choose a queen. He found her very beautiful. He chose her out of all the young women in the area in the, in the land. He chose Esther to be his queen. Well, the king's right-hand man was Haman. 
Haman was a very evil man. Haman was the, the second in command of now the world superpower, I suppose, in Persia, it's modern-day Iran. And Haman is out there walking around, and every time he walks by, he wants everybody to bow to him. That's how Haman acted. And Mordecai was the only one who would not bow to Haman. He was a godly man. I will not bow to a false god. I will only bow to the one true God. He would not bow. Well, Haman comes up with a plan. I'm going to have, Haman says, I'm going to have Mordecai put to death. And not only that, I'm going to have all the Jewish people in the whole land put to death in 12 months. He made it a law. Now, the scripture tells us, and it repeatedly says this. If you read, it's only 10 chapters. It's a good, it's a good read. I'm not going to unpack much of it, but just a couple of things. Esther, the book of Esther, when it talks about Haman, it says, Haman, the Agagite, who was an enemy of the Jews. Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. You say, well, what, is, what does this mean, the Agagite? What the well, here is what it is, is an Agagite was a descendant of King Agag, and if you go back about 500 years when there was King Saul, you remember Dave Lemoyne talked to us about Samuel, right, last month? Samuel was the prophet of God who spoke to King Saul and said, you need to go out, wipe out all of the people under King Agag. That's who King Agag, you've got to go back that far. He says, you've got to wipe them all out. See, King Agag at the time was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had been a longtime enemy of the Jewish people. They were like land pirates beating up on the weaker people. That's what they would try to do and take all their loot. That was their role. And God said, look it, through Samuel, he said to King Saul, we finally need to deal with this. We need to get rid of all of the Amalekites. But they didn't. They let King Agag live, it says in the scripture. And that probably meant in those days that they let his family live too. So they obeyed in part. I mean, they, they attacked them and they did, you know, they did take many of the people out and kill many of the people, but they did not kill everybody. And here we see 500 years later, an Agagite reappears. Now, they did eventually kill King Agag, but the point is, is that 500 years later, they're dealing with a law to annihilate all of the Jewish people because somebody didn't obey 500 years before. But if you know the story of Esther, and if you know the story of the whole Bible, it's God's plan of deliverance. God has a plan to deliver the people. Well, uh, Mordecai went to his, uh, his cousin Esther and said, we, we need to pray. We need to pray and fast. So uh, they did. Because Mordecai was like, you need to talk to the king about this. They're going to kill all of us anyway. So Esther and Mordecai began to pray. And when they prayed, the king's heart was changed. It says that very night the king couldn't sleep. He was awakened. He said, somebody read me uh, my chronicles of my, my kingdom and all this stuff. And they come across this story of Mordecai saving the life of the king. That's what the king has read. And he says, hey, did we ever honor that guy, Mordecai? Do we ever do anything about that? Oh, no, we didn't. He says, well, let's do You know what? I'm going to assign Haman to honor Mordecai. That's what happens when we obey the enemies that are set out to steal and kill and destroy. The powers and the principalities that are meant to destroy us are now all of a sudden underneath us. In the spiritual realm, we will be above that garbage. And that's exactly what happens here. So we can certainly see that obedience is important. We can certainly see that obedience is life-changing. But we must have this verse in order. 
we have to, we cannot focus on obedience. If, if obedience is our focus, we will lose. I've played that game. I will tell you, I can tell you hundreds of stories. I'll tell you what, it doesn't work. But loving God and getting in his presence works every time I do it. Because his hand is there for me to pull me out of any situation. He is a redeemer. God, I need you. God, I need you. That's the most important prayer you could probably pray. God, I need you. <laughs> I need you, God. I need you today. I need you in this situation. I need you in my bank account. Bring your idols. Bring them. Come on. Bring them. And say, Lord, help me out with this. As long as you're facing him, you can bring them. He's not afraid of them. He'll take them. He'll teach you. He'll bring you out of it. He'll walk you out of it. He'll say, this is my way. Just start seeing things in a different light. See, obedience is simply the response in that. When we have our, when we're facing God, we're facing his presence, the obedience piece, that, that's the response. It's not the focus. If we make it our focus, then... We're going to lose. Well, of course, if you keep reading the story of Esther, you'll see many more things. Not only did Esther go before the king, which was actually risking her life, but the king changed the law. The king actually had uh, Haman killed, and, the, and, and Mordecai actually lived in Haman's house. I mean, the story just goes on and on. It is a beautiful uh, story. But what do I want, what do we need to walk away with today? Two words. Simple. And I need it all the time. Turn around. You're standing in the temple of God. Turn around. If we're looking at the temple, we get this picture, we can see it. His presence is right there. He is waiting for us to turn around. He is waiting for us to see what I'm doing for you because you know what? That curtain inside that temple was torn in two the moment Jesus died on the cross. This is one of those things that's undisputable. I mean, there's things about scripture that we believe by faith that we may not necessarily be able to prove by science or history, but I'll tell you what, this is actually proven by history. That temple tore in two, meaning I am, my spirit can dwell with you. It's not just boxed in this area of the temple. It's the second part of our memory verse that says, look it, I will come and make my home with you. My presence is there for you. This, this all seems to make sense when we face him, we get into his presence, and now we're walking in his ways and he is with us. That's the second part of this verse. When we get into the Lord's presence and we focus on him, he wants, to, he wants to tell us things. I mean, he wants to talk to us about, he wants to tell us about, I mean, how about that, how about that crown of thorns being dragged down his scalp? Do you know that you were on his mind that day? I can prove that to you. When Jesus was questioned before his execution, he was brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders of the time. And they're questioned, what do you think you are, the son of God? Like, uh, you know, who do you think you are? He quotes a prophecy from Daniel chapter 7, he says, you will see me coming on the clouds. That was a prophecy, not about his first coming, 
That was not a prophecy even about his ascension to heaven. That was a prophecy about his second coming, when he is going to come and be with us in person. I know that you were on his mind that day. When you sing that, when you, if you heard that song, when he was on that cross, I was on his mind, it all begins to blend and make sense. Let me talk to you, Jesus says, about the nails that were put in my hands. Let me talk to you about how I was whipped. And I'm going to call you my bride. I am going to use the term for you that is, the, if I could talk about my family or my wife even, but if I talk about my bride, is there another word? Is there another word in the English language that is more precious than that? And here God uses that term for us. You are my bride. There is nothing more. There is nothing more. I, I would do anything to have you. Just turn around. Just focus on me. That's obedience. We'll walk all this other stuff out together. I'll call you into things. Look, at Esther was called into things. She had to go before the king. <laughs> she could have thought all kinds of things. Oh, he just picked me because I'm pretty. In fact, it says in the scripture, he hasn't called for her in 30 days. That's, what she, that's her response to Mordecai. <laughs> he, I don't think he really cares about me. He hasn't even called for me in 30 days. He's got plenty of concubines. He got rid of, her, he got rid of his earlier queen. Why wouldn't he get rid of me? See, that's the response of people that we have to God's call in our life. We just start thinking about why we shouldn't be equipped, our past, our sin. <laughs> Guys, if we ever think that our sin is a match for the blood of Jesus, we are dead wrong. But see, what did Esther do? She turned around. She focused on God. She said, God, it's you I need to get into this attitude of prayer. And what happens is she eventually goes before the king. She obeys. That's the response. Guys, if you want to get prayer today, if you're dealing with just this whole idea, maybe a missed perception of obedience, we want to pray with you. If you're just saying, look, I just need to, I just, I just need to get into God's presence. I just need to turn around. This is a practice that we need to have in our everyday walk. This is something that, it, I mean, John the Baptist calls it a fruit of repentance. The word repentance just means to turn around. Fruit, fruit popping out of trees all the time. I mean, we just need to turn around all the time. Anytime that our focus comes off of him, that's our goal. So we do want to pray for you if you want prayer. I'm going to have the worship team come up, and we're going we're gonna to worship we're going to get into an attitude of worship. And as we worship, I just want us to remember that obedience can't be the focus. Loving Jesus is the focus, and obedience will follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.